0: I'm sure that a lot of you get up in the morning, or at times when you just need to sit and, and receive something from the Lord, you open up the Bible and you just want to grab onto something. You open up to a Psalm, and Psalms are so practical because they deal with issues in our life that all of us go through. You know, the Psalms, David will be flying high one Psalm, and the next Psalm he'll be real low. He was saying, "Oh, praise the Lord, magnify the Lord." The next Psalm, "Why have you cast us off, Lord?" and It fits because so often we have the experiences of being high on the Lord and then the next day we're down. And when we face reality, there isn't always that high smile on our face kind of a thing. We have times of depression. We have times of loneliness and doubt. And David reflects a true walk with God. Someone who's high, but the next time they really are fighting and struggling and they really need to call out upon the Lord. The word Psalms means literally songs of praises. And this book that we're looking at this morning was actually the Hebrew songbook. They would sing the psalms as part of their worship to the Lord. They would use scripture to sing to the Lord. I love using psalms to sing to the Lord. We sing Psalm 5, we sing Psalm 27. We sing a few of the other psalms, Ephesians. We sing different portions of scripture. I think that's the neatest songbook that there is. Micah chapter 6 verse 8. Different scriptures put to music. So the book of Psalms was the first Hebrew songbook that they would use in their worship. The Psalms were written in poetry. But there's a difference between Hebrew poetry. Hebrew poetry doesn't rhyme. Now, our poetry, we make sure that the words rhyme and there's a certain uh, beat and rhythm to it and all. In Hebrew uh, poetry, they don't do that. Hebrew poetry, they write in parallelism. In other words, you'll see a thought expressed and then a parallel thought underneath it expressed. And so it'll say, uh, you know, our, the Lord is a shield, our banner and the lifter of our head underneath it. So there'll be parallel thoughts or there'll be contrasting thoughts. The righteous are this way, the wicked are this way. So it'll either be parallel thoughts or contrasting thoughts. Psalm 1 is a psalm of contrast. Because you notice the first word of the psalm and the last word of the psalm, blessed, blessed. And perish. Two contrasting thoughts. And the contrast is between the righteous and the wicked. Or the ungodly and those who follow the Lord. The effects and the results of a righteous man are found in the first word of the psalm. Blessed. The effects and the results of the wicked unrighteous man are found in the last word. Perish. And so it's a psalm of contrast. It is a portion of scripture that describes the happy. Man or the happy woman. Because notice the first word. It says, blessed is the man. The word blessed, <clears throat> literally translated, means, oh, how happy. Or, how blissful. Or, to be congratulated are those. Oh, how blessed, to be congratulated, how happy. The word blessed in Hebrew is a plural word and it actually means happinesses or uh, To have many happinesses, many blessings. It's a compound kind of a word. It's not just a one-time filling. It's many times of happiness. So, oh, how happy is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly. The psalmist here is writing about the basic need of every human being. And that is to be happy. You ever ask a person, well, what do you want to do? What do you want out of life? And usually the answer many times is, Really doesn't matter. I just want to be happy. We just want to be happy as a family. I just want to be happy as an individual. I'm just looking for happiness. And it's sort of interesting to see what people tag as happiness. You ever looked at the bumper stickers that say happiness is this? Happiness is a family home evening. (laughs) Happiness is you know having a dachshund or a new motorcycle or happiness is all sorts of things. Just like I love New York. I love San Francisco. I love uh, pork and beans, or whatever they love. <laughs> Everybody has their own idea of happiness. I remember at our wedding, was out, out front on the marquee that we got married at a golf course, and it says, happiness is skip and lenya. I thought, that's sweet, but it's we're happy. But that doesn't mean that our marriage makes everyone else in the world happy. <laughs> no one, Not everyone in the world knows who we are, so it's, it's really no big deal, but... Psalm 1 describes, if you want to be happy, this is the way to live. This is the way to attain happiness. And it lists a series of things that the follower of God does not do, does not get involved in, and then the things that he does, and then it uh, describes the results of the happy man or the blessed man. Now, maybe you're not a Christian. You say, I'm happy and I'm not a Christian. So there. Well, I don't deny that fact, but how long will your happiness last? How long will you go on in this state of happiness apart from the Lord? And maybe you'll go on a whole lifetime. And you'll die in this little happy state of yours, but then you won't be happy anymore. David said, I was envious of the foolish when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. He goes, I look in the world and there's so many people that are happy apart from God. And I'm going through these hard struggles and hard times as a follower of God. And I was envious. And he said, until I went into the sanctuary and I understood their end, where they would end up. David said, I'm not envious anymore of them. And today, if you desire to live apart from Jesus Christ, you don't want God, you don't really care about God, you're just sort of going along with the ride, and you're happy enough where you are in the world, then let me encourage you to get all that you can out of this earth while you're here. Be as happy as you can. Suck this earth like an orange to get all that you can out of it because it's the last good time that you'll have. Because there is a day when you will have to face a time of eternal unhappiness. But in contrast to that, God gives the way for true happiness in Psalm 1. The happy psalm, the blessed man. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, Nor does he stand in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth its fruit in its season, whose leaf also shall not wither, and whatever he will do shall prosper. Before we get into this and pick it apart, know that he is speaking of God's intention for every child of God. This is not a description of a a super saint or an exceptional person. The person who's got it all together in Jesus Christ. It's every single Christian. This is his description. There are no super saints. There are only super saints in the minds of those who think they are. But it is describing the normal Christian life. One of blessedness. One of blissfulness to be congratulated. Oh, how happy is the man. And then it describes that normal Christian life. Now, that doesn't mean that Christians are never to be sad. And I want to underline that because look at the book of Psalms. David was happy. Then David was sad. There were times, but all in all, it was that life of blessedness as he was seeking the Lord and being satisfied by the Lord. Christians, you always don't have to come to church with a smile on your face. And so many Christians think, I've got to smile because Christians are supposed to smile. And I've had people come, and you know, I'm here during the day, Skip, you're not smiling. Oh, forgive me, I'm sorry, I forgot, I'm always supposed to smile. <laughs> we don't always, be yourself. You should be able to reflect what's going on inside of you as a, as a person. Maybe you don't want to smile, maybe you want to cry, you just need someone to, to take and say, hey, I'm going through a lot of tough times, I need to just have a shoulder to cry on. But all in all, the main keel of the Christian life is one of fulfillment, one of bliss, to be congratulated. Now, first, uh, Paul, first, David will describe the negative characteristics of the righteous man, and that's found in verse 1. Then he'll describe the positive characteristics, or what a Christian is, in verse 2. In verse 3, he'll describe the results of that man. And then verses 4 through 6, the contrast with the wicked. First of all, the blessed man, the happy man. He says in verse 1, Who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly. The word counsel means advice. He doesn't walk in the advice of the ungodly. Be careful about opinions when they're directed toward you. Be careful about other people's advice in your life. Use real discrimination When people give you advice on how you should live, what you should do, make sure that it's godly counsel because there's an awful lot of ungodly counsel. Ungodly counsel can ruin a person, can ruin a Christian. And I think it's one of Satan's most subtle devices. Listening to the counsel of a well-meaning person, but an ungodly person. You know, it's good advice, but it's just not scripturally sound. Be careful of opinions, of advice. Use discrimination. Use discernment. He walks not in the counsel of the ungodly. You know, everybody has an opinion, don't they? And everyone that you're around has an opinion of how you should be. You know, you're getting too religious here lately at work. You're going a little overboard, carrying that Bible with you everywhere, bowing your head before you eat a meal in the cafeteria. You know, I know a person who went crazy because he got too religious. And so you begin listening to it and you think, yeah, you know, I am getting a little too religious. Maybe I, I don't need to witness as much as I do to these people. that you know, I don't need to tell them about God. They'll just see it in the way I live. And I don't need to bring my Bible to work or read it during the day. And maybe I do go to church a little too much. And so we begin to slack off on our priorities. We begin to listen to the counsel of the ungodly. We begin to make little compromises here and there. Because we've received ungodly counsel and we start abiding by it or taking heed to it. We start saying, I don't need to do that as much. I don't need to stay as close to the Lord. And because we're listening to the counsel of the ungodly, we find ourselves staggering, falling. Why? Because we've listened to wrong advice. Maybe well-meaning advice. Maybe people who love you. But it's not scriptural good advice. Jeremiah, when he was called of God, he was just a kid. He was probably about between 15 years old and 20 years old. And God says, Jeremiah, you're the one I've called to be the spokesman to the entire nation of Israel. Me? I'm just a kid. God said, don't tell me you're just a kid. And Jeremiah said, but I'm afraid of the people. I mean, I'm just a kid. I'm 15 years old and all these people are they're the sages. They're old. They're learned. They're wise. They're the upright religious people. God says, don't be afraid of their faces or what they're going to say unto you. I will give you my words and my wisdom within you. Don't be afraid of them. Don't worry about how they're going to react. Don't listen to their counsel or nor be afraid of their faces, he was told. He says he doesn't walk in the counsel of the ungodly. Now, when we say ungodly, that might paint a very black picture to you. You might think of someone who is, uh, you know, dresses a certain way and has got a gun in his hand and he has a criminal record. That's ungodly. The word ungodly literally means unlike God. I guess all of us then would be ungodly, wouldn't we? But he's describing a person who does not care about the ways of God. And he is ignorant of the ways of God. Now, that could mean a person could be very good, very upstand, outstanding in his community, very well-meaning, but he could be ungodly. He might be a parent whom you love, a husband or a wife who doesn't know the Lord, a child, maybe a close friend who gives you advice and you're used to that advice. And they mean well, and let me say this that don't take all of the counsel of people who are not saved and throw it out the window. He's speaking about counsel concerning your spiritual walk. Now my parents are very good advisors to me. But when it comes to my spiritual walk, they are not good advisors. Because they don't know the Lord. But in every other aspect of life, they are generally advise me very well and I'll listen to their advice and their counsel. But when it comes to spiritual counsel, I weigh it, I discriminate against it. Now, you wouldn't take your stereo if it was broken to someone who works on trucks. Yeah, I'll fix it. Gets out the hammer. No problem. You take it to someone who knows what they're doing. Neither would you take your spiritual life to someone who doesn't have spiritual godly principles. That's the counsel of the ungodly. He doesn't walk or stand in the counsel of the ungodly. By the way, don't expect them to understand. If you're living with a non-saved husband or wife or parent or child or a good friend, don't expect them to understand your life in the Lord. The Bible says that the natural person does not understand spiritual things. He doesn't receive them. They're foreign to him. You can't expect someone in darkness uh, if, if you took a blind person and you said, hey, what a beautiful sunset. Oh, great, I understand that completely. They don't have the faculties to understand a beautiful sunset. You wouldn't take someone deaf to a symphony and expect them to get a lot out of it. They don't have the faculties to understand what's going on. Neither does someone who doesn't know the Lord or who is ungodlike, ungodly, to be able to understand your walk in the Lord and be very discriminatory about their counsel. So he doesn't walk in the counsel of the ungodly. Second, nor stands in the way of sinners. If you begin listening to the counsel of the ungodly, soon you will find yourself standing with them. Because you've listened to their counsel, and pretty soon you're standing with those same people. This happened in the early church. There was a church who started out very pure, loving God. It was the church of Corinth. The church of Corinth was a bright and shining light in the Greek empire. But when Paul wrote his letter to the Corinthians, he really got down all over them. He says, you've started out so well, but now you're mingling with the world. The church of Corinth began living among the world. They started listening to the counsel of the world, and pretty soon they started becoming like the world. They were filled with all sorts of sexual immorality, all sorts of dumb things happening within the church, just like the world. So Paul had to write a letter of reproof or rebuke because they begin listening to the world. Now they started standing with the world and they were just like the world. They began by listening. Then they started standing. The Bible says that we're to be separate. Jesus said, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. And in the original language, it's you and you alone are the salt of the earth. You and you alone are the light of the world. Which is a phenomenal thing to say at Jesus' day because they were surrounded by the Greek philosophers. Plato, Aristotle, Socrates had come before them. And they proclaimed giving light to the world. They were the light bearers as far as education and enlightenment were concerned. And Jesus took 12 peasants from Galilee and said, You and you only are the light of the world. You and you only are the salt of the earth. In other words, they were the only ones that had the answers. They were to be separate. As Christians, we are to be separate, which usually means unpopular as well. Means losing friends, acquaintances, maybe even members of your family. But the happy man is one who won't listen to the counsel of those who don't know the Lord in their spiritual walk. They won't stand in the path of sinners. My dad used to give me some good advice. He would say, If you want to get good at anything, hang around people who are good at it. I wanted to be a good tennis player, and I never made it. Because I always played with someone I could beat. Because I wanted to feel good. I wanted to beat the guy. And I'd find someone who couldn't play very well, and I'd kind of say, Well, I I can't play very well. And I'd beat him. And I felt good, but I never got any better. My dad said, Skip, if you want to be a good tennis player, play with a tennis pro if he'll play with you. And get good at it. Learn his tricks. Because who you associate with, it'll rub off on you. If you want to be a derelict, he'd say, hang around with the derelict. And he'd give me this speech he gave me once a month. I remember quite well. <laughs> but it's true. Whoever you associate with or whatever you expose yourself to, it rubs off. Have you ever noticed friends when they hang around together for a long time? They start saying the same words like I'm stoked on that. Or I'm really jazzed about that. They may never never have said it before, but they become good friends. Husbands and wives, have you ever noticed? They start acting alike, even looking alike sometimes because they're (laughs) around each other. They start liking the same things. It's a wonderful thing. It's a wonderful blending. But whoever you expose yourself to when you admire that person, you often take on the traits or the habits of that person. They rub off. It's an influence. Then he says this nor sits in the seat of the scornful. The seat of the scornful is one of the most popular places to be today. The seat of the scornful, as David called it. Have you ever heard phrases like this? Scornful phrases? You mean you believe the Bible literally? Everything that's written in it? Oh, how stupid. How foolish. You, an educated person, believing the Bible literally. Literally. Or how about this one? I believe Jesus is a good person, but the Son of God? God in the flesh? Come on. How foolish. Or how about this one? Oh, you say Jesus is coming soon. My grandmother said that. That's what they said before the flood. (laughs) Scoffing. The seed of the scoffers. Peter said in the last days will come scoffers walking after their own lusts. Saying, where's the promise of His coming? Since our forefathers fell asleep, they've been saying that. My grandmother used to say that. The seat of the scornful, the scoffers. Notice the digression. First, walking in the counsel of the ungodly. Then they're slowing down. They're not walking anymore. They're standing in the path of sinners. And pretty soon they'll be sitting in the seat of the scornful. It seems like it's the in thing today to put God out. It's the intellectual status quo to not believe in God or Jesus Christ. To look at the Bible as an archaic piece of literature like Greek mythology. If you do that, you're intellectual. I remember when I went through college and I was taught evolution, I found an interesting thing that most people in the medical school were believing in evolution because, and they were intelligent people, but most intelligent people believed in evolution because they realized that most most intelligent people believe in evolution. That was their only motivation. They thought, to be intelligent, you've got to believe it. I would talk to people about evolution and about science, and I would uh, present some things uh, in science, and they couldn't answer the questions. Wow, I never thought of that before. Well, then why do you believe in that? Well, you don't believe in creation. Well, why not? And I would give some facts on evolution and creation from science. But I found that the only reason they believed in evolution is they figured that the intelligent people believed in evolution. And the stupid things that people would believe in and yet scoff at the Bible. I had an anatomy professor... And she said, well, you know why the the reasons your hair on your arms go down like this is because your forefathers, when they hung on trees and the sweat and the water off the trees would hang down. And people go, wow, that's great. I never thought about that before. And they ate it up. And yet you say, God created the heavens and the earth. Oh, scoffing the seat of the scornful. There was a girl who was speaking to her friends one day about Jonah yeah, Jonah got, uh, was uh, th- thrown off this boat and a whale swallowed him for three days and he got spit up on the shore. And an intellectual professor came up to her and said, in front of all her friends, exposed her, you don't believe in that silly, stupid story, do you? Of course I do. Well, if you believe in Jonah and the whale, how could he have survived for three days without the oxygen supply being in his stomach? I don't know. And with the acid in the whale's belly, you think a man could have survived that for three days? I don't know. And he started giving her all these intellectual scientific questions and she couldn't answer them. And so in front of all her friends, he goes, and you believe in the Bible? How stupid. She goes, sir, I don't understand or know all those questions that you're asking me, but when I get to heaven, I'll ask Jonah. (laughs) He said, oh, when you get to heaven, you'll ask Jonah. What if Jonah isn't in heaven? She said, then you ask him. The seat of the scornful, the scoffers. How many people have begun by listening to ungodly advice and pretty soon they start slacking off in their walks with the Lord and they stand with the sinners and then pretty soon they're sitting in the seat of the scornful saying the same things. How many Christians have you met saying, I tried it, didn't work for me. Maybe Christianity is good for you. I tried it once, it doesn't work for me. Because they began by listening to the worldly counsel, worldly wisdom. Slowing down to a standing. And then pretty soon they were sitting, not making progress. And they became one of the scoffers. I tried it. It doesn't work for me. I think of how many Christians have made compromises with the world. And before we go on to the next verse, I want to read a letter to you that was written to a pastor. From a fellow who was at work and three girls came in and got a job at work. He was a Christian and so were they. I want you to read the letter. Dear, I'll read it to you. Dear Pastor, This past week I had a tragic illustration of the price of failure to take God seriously. The names have been changed. Some years ago, three fresh-faced young girls came to work where I'm employed. They were quick to tell all who would listen that they were Christians, out to turn the place upside down for Jesus Christ. Within a few months, all three had decided to get a little taste of of the world, one is now raising an out-of-wedlock child all alone. The second came back to the Lord and has since married a keen Christian fellow, who is con- a converted heroin addict. They've had some problems in their former lifestyle, but it looks as though they might make it. And then there was Jerry, raised in a moral, religious home. She rebelled in her teen years, left her faith, and went a little wild. When she professed Christ in her late teens, her parents looked on it as just part of her rebellion. It was easy for her to slide back into the old life. After about a year of of out-of-fellowship living, Jerry began actively pursuing a married man at work. Unhappily married, he put up just a little resistance. Several fellow workers, including at least one Christian, approached her about her folly. She was sure that she just couldn't give him up, so he left his wife and moved in with her. Jerry was called into the office at work. Her lover intervened, threatening the life of the foreman over the matter, and as a result was fired. The discipline was unrelated to their relationship. When the divorce was final, they married. She dismissed his violent threats toward the foreman as all talk and his having beaten his former wife as the result of extreme provocation. The husband's two children came to live with them. The elder was only eight years younger than 22-year-old Jerry. The children lacked training and discipline. They asked hard questions about their father and Jerry's relationship. At this point, Jerry confided to me that she had known that she had done wrong and she now repented. She was surprised that the repercussions of her sin continued even after her repentance. Within a few months, the marriage disintegrated into a bitter feud, each returning hurt for hurt. Jerry filed for divorce and then moved back home. Last Tuesday morning, she was leaving for home after her graveyard shift and she told a fellow worker, I've got it all together now. When my divorce is final, I'm going to marry this really neat guy. That was yesterday. Yesterday, Jerry was happy. Today, Jerry is dead. She was shot by her estranged husband who then turned the gun on himself. Today, two broken broken-hearted families grieve. Two children are fatherless, all because of failure to take God seriously. For Jerry, the wages of sin was literal, physical death. Now, I share that with you not to scare you, but simply to warn you of what can happen when you begin listening to ungodly counsel. Then you begin standing in the seat of the scornful. It's possible. Then you're sitting with the scoffers. That digression from that blessed walk with the Lord, doing nothing, being as one of them. So he describes the negative. Now, let's go on. There's... Better material to go. The positive characteristics of the blessed or the righteous man. Verse 2. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law doth he meditate day and night. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth its fruit in its season. The positive characteristics. Delighting in the law of God, meditating day and night. God in his word has given to us rules for a happy, full, rich life. He's given them to us. If we violate those rules, we suffer the consequences. You can't get around it. There are spiritual laws that if you violate them, you pay the price. Just as physical laws. Spiritual laws are as powerful as natural laws in their cause and effect. Electricity, a wonderful thing. We can turn on lights and we can read our Bibles. We can harness the power of electricity. It's a great thing to have. But what if we violate the law? What if you stick your fingers in a socket and you get a permanent? You pay the consequence. What if you defy the law of gravity? I'm going to jump. now. I don't believe the law of gravity. If you shortcut God's rules on the same line, you pay the consequences. You suffer. They're just as powerful in cause and effect as natural laws. And God has given us those rules so that we can live a full, rich life. Blessed life, God has promised us that. He said he delights in the law of God. That's the first word that he uses. In verse 2, his delight is in the law of God and in his law he meditates day and night. The word delight means to have a strong desire for something or looking forward to doing something. Do you remember when you were in school? I mean way back in school, grade school, maybe even high school. And you couldn't wait to get out because you had a project at home you wanted to do. And your mind was on that all day. I remember for weeks I painted my bicycle. It took me weeks. And every, I couldn't wait to get out of class. I wanted to catch the bus, go home, and paint my bicycle. You know, that candy apple red. Again, and, put the new spokes on it. And that was my project for weeks. I got bad grades during that portion. But I was looking forward. I couldn't wait to get out of school so I could do something I wanted to do. That's the word he uses describing... David's relationship to the Word of God. He delighted. He looked forward to getting into it. What's amazing about this is David only had the first five books of Moses to delight in. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Those are some tough books to delight yourself in. (laughs) His delight was in the law, the Torah, the Word of God. And in his law, he was meditating day and night. Keep your finger here and turn to Psalm 119, 119. I want you to notice a few phrases of David. Psalm 119. Notice what he says about the Word of God. Verse 1. Blessed are the undefiled in the way who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with the whole heart. Notice verse 9. How can a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed according to your word. Verse 11. Your word have I hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. Verse 15. I will meditate on your precepts. Contemplate your ways. I will delight myself in your statutes. I will not forget your word. Verse 17. Deal bountifully with your servant that I may live and keep your word. Open my eyes that I might behold wondrous things from your word. Uh, Go over to verse 46. I will speak of your testimonies before the kings. I will not be ashamed. I will delight myself in your commandments. My hands also I will lift up to your commandments, which I love. I will meditate on your statutes. Verse 70. Their heart is as fat as grease, but I delight in your law. It is good that I have been afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. The law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of shekels of gold and silver. And verse 97. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Man, he was into it. To write a whole psalm about the word of God. Your testimonies, your word, your law, your ordinances, I delight in, O God. Why did David delight so much in God's word? Because he looked at the Bible, the first five books of Moses at that time, as his tool to bring him into fellowship with God. There's an important question that you should ask yourself before you look at any portion of Scripture. Before you get up in the morning and read the Bible, ask yourself a question. What do I intend to do with the knowledge that I receive once I have gotten it? Will I file it away in my little knowledge bank? Or will I live what I read? Will I act upon it? Will it become a part of my life? It's not how you underline your Bible. It's how your Bible underlines you. I delight in the law of God, David was saying. And then he says... And in His law, He meditates day and night. The word meditate means to ponder or to contemplate. We need not only to read the Bible, but to feed on the Bible. To sit and chew it. To contemplate it. Not just to let it run through the pipe of our brain in and out, but to think about it, to contemplate it. To sit a while. You know, one of my biggest problems when I go out and eat is that I eat too fast. And everyone who eats with me at a, across the table knows that I, I'm a quick eater. And they'll be a quarter of the way down and I'll just be waiting for them. Because I just, you know, when I go, I'm a vacuum when it comes to eating. and uh, It's one of my problems that the Lord's working on. The reason for that is I had three older brothers. And we had only one portion at the dinner table that was allotted to us. And so you've got to learn to eat quick to compete with those guys. So I always learn to eat quickly. Now, when I go out to an expensive restaurant, that can be dangerous because, you know, I can just, you know, snort the food down and I'm realizing now that it's $2.50 a snort and it's expensive. I'm learning to slow down and to enjoy it, to chew it. When you go out and order lobster or scallops, you just don't whip them down. You just take your time and you enjoy it and you chew it and you have a, a little water before each bite. I'm not used to doing that because of my brothers. I'm blaming it on them but nonetheless, if I would take and enjoy it and ponder it and chew it a little bit, it would be more enjoyable. In the Word of God, we need to sit and enjoy it, to ponder it, to contemplate it, to meditate upon the Scripture. David was feasting upon the Word of God. He meditates day and night. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water. This is the result of the righteous man. You will be like a tree planted by the rivers of water and that literally means your roots will go deep and spread out by the water. In Israel, and Palestine today, there are trees by the Jordan River. The Jordan River is very lush and green up north. Down south where it's about 1,300 feet below sea level, it's desert and it's about 120 to 125 degrees in the summer. But there's trees there, oleander trees, that... Roots are down by the river and they grow uh, toward the river and they're bright green, these beautiful big red blossoms on them, a large deep root system. And no matter what the experience, if it's hot outside or cold outside, they're flourishing all year long and they produce fruit. Beautiful trees. He's speaking of being nourished and being satisfied. Meditating upon the Word of God, you become nourished spiritually and you become contented, you become satisfied as a Christian. Living in contentment. Our society is marked by not being content. You know, we have something, we want something more. You know, we get the new stereo, and we've got to have the bigger speakers. We get the bigger speakers, we've got to have the new analyzer and the new synthesizer or whatever. Honey, i just got to have this new nuclear-powered speakers. They're big, but the sound is incredible. They're only $4,200, no biggie. And a desire for more, no, not ever being contented. Your roots will be spread out by the rivers and you'll be contented, David said. You'll be nourished, you'll be fed, you'll be satisfied. Not only that, but it says that brings forth its fruit in its season. If you discriminate on who you listen to and you don't stand in the way of sinners and you don't sit in the seat of the scornful, but your meditation and delight is in the law of God, you will be fruitful. And that is the normal Christian life. It's not, oh, wow, he's such a good Christian. He's such a super Christian because he's always meditating in the Word. That's normal. All of us should be that way. You will bring forth fruit in your season. Jesus used this example, didn't he, in John chapter 15. I am the vine. My father is the husbandman. Every branch in me that doesn't bear forth fruit, he takes away. But every branch that bears fruit, he purges it that it might bring forth more fruit. Jesus said, I am the vine. You are the branches. Abide in me, and you shall bring forth much fruit. The word abide is the same word here, where you're closely connected. And when you stay closely connected to Jesus Christ, meditating upon his word, you will be a fruitful Christian. That's who he's speaking to. What does it mean to be a fruitful Christian? Have you ever seen a fruitful tree? Do you grow trees? Some of you have them in your backyard. Fruitful trees bear so much fruit, if you have one... I had a peach tree, and last year it bore. It had so many peaches, I couldn't eat them all. Most of them rotted because I didn't take care of it. But the ones that survived, I couldn't eat all of them. Just one tree yielded so much so that I couldn't handle it I have to give it away to friends. As a fruitful Christian, you will have so much of these fruits of the Spirit that other people will be affected. People will be able to come up to you and, and sort of pick the fruit off the tree. You'll have impact on people. You will affect other people because you'll be a fruitful Christian abiding in the Lord. And then he says, His leap shall also not wither and whatever he does shall prosper. Now, don't think necessarily outward prosperity. Job prospered in God, but not outwardly for a while. But his heart was prospering his relationship. The word prosper in Hebrew means to bring to maturity. That's what it means literally. In other words, the fruit that will be produced in your life will blossom, bud, and come to maturity. That's exciting. There's nothing worse than starting a project and seeing it not come to fruition. You know, it just sort of dies out. You start on something, oh man, just, just never took off, never went. Whatever you will do as you meditate in God's law will come to maturity. Keep your finger here and turn back to Joshua chapter 1. God is speaking to Joshua the very same thing in verse 6. He says, be strong and of good courage. For to this people you shall divide as an inheritance the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous that you may observe to do according to all the law which Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it from the right hand or to the left that you may prosper wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate in it day and night, that you may observe to do according to all that is written in it, for then you will make your way prosperous, then you shall have good success. What is the pathway to success? Not positive confession. Meditating upon the Word of God. That, then everything that you do will come to maturity, and you yourself will be a mature, fruitful Christian. Then there's the contrast. He says the ungodly are not so, but are like the chaff which the wind drives away. Therefore the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment. Literally, they won't stand, they will fall. Nor the sinners in the congregation of the righteous, for the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. He says that the ungodly are like chaff. Do you notice here the analogies are all agricultural analogies? You as a Christian will be like a tree. They will be like chaff. When they would harvest wheat, they would take wheat in their hand and they would rub it. And the chaff would come off and they'd throw the wheat up in the air into the wind. The wind would blow the light chaff away and the wheat would fall down on the sheet. That's how they harvest their wheat. The chaff was good for nothing. It will just be blown away. But the wheat will remain. God says, you will remain. You will be fruitful. You will stand before God. And He closes saying... The Lord knows the way of the righteous. Or literally, He is constantly looking on their way. God is constantly looking out for us. The way of the blessed man and the way of the ungodly man. So, number one, don't listen to ungodly advice when it comes to your spiritual walk. If you do, you might find yourself in the very boat that these three young ladies did. But your delight... You will look forward to meditating upon the Word of God, pondering it, letting God apply it to your life, obeying it, applying it. You will be fruitful. Everything you do will come to maturity. It will bud, it will blossom. That's the blessed life. Now, before we close, I want to give you a word of warning. If you are a fruitful Christian this morning, or you plan to be one, Satan will attack you because he doesn't want you to be one. And every time God gives you a blessing, Satan wants to rip it off. Every time you desire to walk closer to God, Satan challenges it, tries to make it difficult for you. He will attack you. When you desire to meditate and delight yourself in God's Word and become a fruitful Christian, you will be confronted or attacked. But also, God will take that attack and God will even use it for your own good, to prune you. If you were a fruitful Christian this morning, God takes out His divine little clippers and begins to prune you. Jesus said, Every branch that bears forth fruit, my Father prunes it or purges it, that it could bring forth more fruit. So God will use those experiences to build you and to mold you so that you will become even more fruitful, even more blessed, even more happy to be congratulated. Now, if you don't know Jesus Christ this morning even if you're a very good person, very religious person, but you're not, you are ungodlike. You haven't taken the principles of God and really committed yourself to Jesus Christ. God wants to satisfy you this morning. God wants you to be satisfied, not unsatisfied going from experience to experience in this world looking for happiness, but a real satisfaction that can only come through God. A fruitful Christian. He wants to make you fruitful, satisfied by the rivers of water nourished. And God is speaking to you this morning, saying, come to Jesus Christ and you'll be satisfied. Let's pray. Father, I pray both for those who know the Lord and those who don't. That you'd make us fruitful, blessed people. You've given us the rules to a rich life. To a mature life. Father, we pray that we might take heed according to your word, delight ourselves, meditate upon your precepts, apply them to our lives. Father, we realize this could cause us to be attacked by the enemy and to be pruned by you and we're willing to go through that because it'll make us even more fruitful. Father, we pray for those who don't know you, that they might make that commitment to know you, that you would fulfill them make them nourished and satisfied in Jesus